I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So I'm going to do a dramatic reading of a scene from a screenplay entitled Twilight. <clears throat> Exterior, Cullen Lodge, front yard. Bella tries to make the dash from the lodge, across the yard, and down towards the boats. Angle and Laurent appearing on the scene. Then Carlisle arrives as well. Carlisle forcefully to Edward. Get her out of here! Carlisle and Esme bravely position themselves between Laurent and his quarry, risking almost certain death. Edward grabs Bella, making a dash for the boat. Laurent battles Esme and Carlisle, easily dominating both. He throws Esme aside like a rag doll and sinks his fangs into Carlisle's throat, viciously killing him. Esme screams. Laurent looks to the beach far below, his eyes narrow. As if looking through a telescope, he can see Edward and Bella climbing into a speedboat. Edward fires up the twin 250s, racing away from the island. Laurent, wanting only Bella, goes after them, leaving Esme kneeling over Carlisle's dead body. Scene ends. That scene, of course, did not appear in the 2008 motion picture Twilight. It's a scene from the unproduced script for a Twilight movie you never saw. An earlier, very different adaptation conceived with the best of intentions, but so far off from the source material that author Stephanie Meyer almost turned her back on the movie business entirely. We tracked down the guy who wrote it. People are going to hate it, I'm sure. It's like like seeing your girlfriend out with someone else who's like riding jet skis and shit. You're like, dude, I hate that guy. Like, <laughs> I, I totally understand. And my apologies. It was my job. That was the house they wanted me to build. Fire up the twin 250s. From higher ground, it's the Big Hit Show. I'm Alex Papadimus. In this episode, several men fall hard for the story of Bella and Edward and try to make it into an action movie that boys will like. Good luck with that. The mystery of Bella Swan is debated. And finally, Twilight is rescued from certain doom by an upstart movie studio, a team of women, and a director unafraid to give teenage girls what they really want. It's an epic story about missed opportunities, 2020 hindsight, and a billion-dollar franchise almost undone by conventional movie business wisdom. Chapter 2 
We need more jet skis. We begin where so many epic stories do, with a guy in his garage reading young adult novels. Hey, Greg. Hello. Thanks very much for doing this. Sure. Greg Moradian is now a successful movie producer, but in the early 2000s, he was a fledgling movie producer who'd figured out one important thing. Young adult literature, novels for young readers as a category, was an untapped goldmine of potential movie ideas. I was working with some scouts in New York uh, who were nice enough to share memos with me so that I could uh, see what was out there. They get hold of manuscripts when they're submitted to publishers. So you get a jump on the process. It also means you're reading unedited manuscripts. That's right. When Greg reads Twilight for the first time, it's not only unpublished, but unedited. Which is crazy because if you've ever read Twilight, even the edited version seems pretty unedited. Anyway, Greg starts reading Twilight. He gets through all the scene setting at the beginning. Here's Bella Swan. She's new in town. She's awkward. Here's Edward Cullen. What's his deal? Why is he acting so weird? And after about 100 pages, he puts the book down. It was when he stopped the car. The car was sliding on the ice, and I went, I get it. This is a famous scene in the book and later in the movie. Edward crosses the parking lot at improbable speed and with only one hand stops a runaway vehicle from crushing Bella, revealing in the process that he's something more than human. I think that was the moment that I went to go uh, eat some Cheez-Its and uh, contemplate that I might have stumbled upon something really, really viable and special. Sometimes this is how a big hit starts. Guy walks into the kitchen from the garage, grabs a handful of Cheez-Its. He's thinking, maybe today's not a total wash. I had no idea, of course, exactly what I had stumbled upon. Of course, there was no way of knowing what it would become, but uh, that, that was the very beginning. I actually know the exact date I started writing because I had it on my calendar. It was the beginning of my summer diet and the first day of swim lessons. It was June 2nd of 2003. What Greg had found was a book by Stephanie Meyer, a first-time author from Phoenix, Arizona, who would later give this account of her literary origin story to fellow famous person Oprah Winfrey in 2009. That's the morning I had the great dream, and I woke up from it just enamored. And in the dream, it was two people in kind of a little circular meadow with really bright sunlight, and one of them was a beautiful, sparkly boy, and one was just a girl who was human and normal, and they were having this conversation, and the boy was a vampire, which is so bizarre that I'd be dreaming about vampires. And he was trying to explain to her how much he cared about her, and yet, at the same time, how much he wanted to kill her. Stephanie wakes up, gets her kids off to school, sits down, and transcribes her dream. It becomes chapter 13 of what turns out to be a book. She writes from there to the end, then goes back and writes the first 12 chapters. Stephanie has young children, and she's accustomed to not getting much sleep, so she works mostly at night. When she sends out query letters, more than a few publishers pass on it, but by the week after Thanksgiving, she has a $750,000 deal to publish Twilight and two more books with Little, Brown, and Company. That's Thanksgiving of 2003, by the way. This whole process, from dream to deal, takes about six months. And it's not long after that, before the book's even on store shelves, that it gets to Greg Moradian. The important words in Stephanie's description of her dream are sparkly and really bright sunlight. Twilight begins with Meyer's subconscious throwing the vampire rulebook out the window. 
Edward and Meyer's other vampires avoid the sun not because it'll kill them, but because they'll attract attention by being too shiny and pretty. Also, they don't even have fangs. The fact that they're vampires is almost beside the point, as Stephanie told a group of fans in 2008. That's my hardest thing to say, is when people say, what's it about? And which should be easy for an author, and I just have to say, ugh. It's about vampires, there's romance. And you just know they're going to cringe. They always do. Everything's a token. I always say, it's not like it sounds. (laughs) Looking back, this seems like the most obvious interpretation of the themes of the book. It's circumstantially a vampire story, but really it's a romance where the complication happens to be supernatural. Edward being a vampire just metaphorizes the scary part of falling in love at any age, namely letting yourself be vulnerable with another person. Except, in this case, the person is super strong and biologically predisposed to want to murder you. Still, it's a love story. Like, duh, of course it is. The memo uh, that I received, the tagline was, Girl falls in love with a vampire. Seven words. Girl falls in love with a vampire. I think that's seven. Yeah, seven. Seven words. But that was arresting to me. I said, like, okay, Romeo and Juliet with a vampire. I really understand that. That's Greg Moradian, who in 2004 holds in his hand some Cheez-Its and a book he believes might be the next big thing. One thing he does not have is the money to make a movie out of it. What I wanted to do was find a powerful partner that I could do this with. And I, I had recently met with the folks at MTV Films and realized that Romeo and Juliet with a vampire would probably resonate with the MTV crowd. It was, in my mind, tailor-made for them. Sure. Teenage love. Teenage vampires. MTV. Makes total sense. But from here on out, for kind of a while, almost nothing would go right. I'm David Gale, and I was running MTV's feature film division, which was based on the Paramount lot in 95 and the first movie we had come out, which was one that we are quite proud of, is Beavis and Bud and Do America. But we went on to, to make dozens of movies after that, including um, you know, Varsity Blues and the Jackass franchise and Election, Napoleon Dynamite, Hustle and Flow, uh, Save the Last Stand. These days, David's proud of how many times MTV Films rolled the dice on newcomers who went on to bigger things, from Justin Lin to Shonda Rhimes. And back in the 2000s, when Greg Moradian walked through the door with Twilight, they saw potential there too. So we read it, we liked it, but we also knew that not having, you know, come out as a book yet, you know, there was a lot of freedom if you were going to develop it. And that's where screenwriter Mark Lord comes in. You know, I really appreciate that you guys have sought me out and are so curious about what would otherwise be a rather obscure piece of, you know, Hollywood history. Superfans of the Twilight franchise know Mark Lord's work, even if they don't know his name. That's because Mark is the first writer to take a crack at adapting Twilight for the screen. And excerpts from the script Mark wrote, including the scene we brought to life, sort of, at the beginning of this episode, have since leaked online, giving fans a glimpse of the dramatically different movie Twilight might have become in the hands of different filmmakers. What I can recall of my pitch was, I don't really care for vampire stories. I really wasn't my jam. But Romeo and Juliet, I love. So I went in and was like, look, I don't love vampires. But I love telling the story about these characters. Um, And so that's why they hired me. They wanted 
to take the concept and build in a structure that was far more like a cinematic structure. And they wanted to just put in some more action to advance it more and give, you know, something more for, for the male audience. They thought it was a little bit too, they were going to lose the male audience um, with too much of a romance. So now we come to the part of the story where everything gets more complicated. MTV Films has optioned the movie rights to Twilight, but only for a limited time. And by the time Mark Lord is done writing a draft of the script, MTV has re-upped that option once already, and the window to do something with this material is closing. Former MTV Films exec David Gale again. It hadn't gotten to the point where we were ready to make the movie. The option was coming up. It wasn't a very significant amount of money to renew it or even to buy the book, from what I remember. But as things happen, when new people come in, in that case to Paramount, they like to clean their slate. They like to uh, sort of get rid of all the former regime's projects. It very rarely do they survive. In this case, there's an additional complication. There's a new guy overseeing production at Paramount, the parent company of MTV Films, and he's convinced, based on personal experience, that moviegoers do not like werewolves. Specifically, the executive on the other side said, I made a movie called Cursed at Miramax, and it was a debacle, and nobody wants to see uh, teen genre films like this where people are werewolves and vampires. It was that telling moment where it's like, oh, so you're doing one of those things that Hollywood does all the time. Your view is colored so much by your own experience or by what you think is right or wrong that you can't see past that. I'm not a screamer at all. I don't yell at people. I don't get into fights. When you talk to former MTV Films executive David Gale about this one, you can tell it still hurts. At that moment when it was clear that we weren't going to have that kind of authority to be able to choose the things we wanted to choose, and we were pretty passionate about Twilight, that was a fight I'll never forget with the studio executive on the other line, screaming and yelling, hanging up the phone. And I sort of sat there and I said, okay, this is it. This is not going to go well. Bella, seething with rage. Where's my father, you cocksucker? A dead body falls from the overhead rafters and lands with a grim thud at her feet. Charlie. Laurent. Sad when people die, isn't it? Scene ends. <laughs> There's always the, the gap between the theory and the practice, right? It's like, we want to do this kind of thing, and then then it goes up to the boss, and like, we need more jet skis, or whatever it might be. Okay. You go put that in. I want to be clear that your takeaway from all this should not be LOL Mark Lord blew it, and not just because Mark was nice enough to talk to us about a script he wrote that everybody hated. Mark Lord here is doing the work he's been hired to do as he understands it. In a moment where Twilight still exists only as a Word document, MTV has made an educated guess in the absence of sales figures or any other data about what kind of Twilight movie the teens might want. And Mark is trying to write that movie. And he's trying to come up with a version of Bella Swan who can drive that kind of story in a traditional movie-like way. 
how did you decide to approach Bella as a character? One of the challenges was that Bella's voice was fascinating, but totally interior. You have to externalize all these things in a film. You have to show them and manifest them as much as you can through dialogue and through actions and context and counterpoints, etc. And sometimes you also have to come up with a plausible reason for your main character to be hanging out in a forest so that she can meet a vampire. My brother is a long-distance runner, and I always thought it was beautiful. Um, and how is she going to get out in the woods? I remember, like, we, I, just to give, to extrovert the character that we thought she had, that determination, that the ability to be alone, um, and then also what's going to get her out in the woods without it being like a sound of music situation, is go out and train. And I wanted a, a strong, like, a little bit stronger as a female character as opposed to, like, just mooning over this guy, if I recall. <laughs> if I recall. It's been a long time. You can see how this way of doing it makes sense from a movie perspective. But if you know the books at all, you know what a departure this is. One of the biggest things about Bella is her physical awkwardness. There is an entire page on the Twilight Saga wiki dedicated to her various injuries and accidents, which the page calls Bella Moments. At one point in the first book, when Edward has to come up with a cover story for Bella getting injured in a vampire attack, he tells everyone that she fell down the stairs and out a window, and people believe it, because that's Bella. She's even afraid of dancing, as if she could run track, or do any of the other James Bond kind of stuff in Mark Lord's draft. That might be a cool character, but it's not Bella. Did you really have Bella blowing away vampires with a shotgun? Probably. Sure. It's badass. I mean, where else are you going to go? I mean, like they wanted stuff to happen, right? Bella wheels and whip aims the shotgun, pumping off several shots from the hip. Angle on where Bella was shooting. The jock vampire grins, having absorbed all of Bella's bullets to no effect. He takes a step toward Bella and smash out of nowhere is mauled by Edward. We didn't want like a helpless turtle on its back character, right? Like that's satisfying. She's like a, you know, in theory, you're rooting for this character. And because they'd amplified it up to the point where they wanted a kind of big conflagration for the end of it, what, uh, do you want her to do nothing? I want that girl to shoot some vampires. I want her to blow some shit away. In the years after Twilight blows up, we're going to hear more and more lip service paid to the importance of quote-unquote strong female characters, which in the somewhat reductive logic of movies usually means like a girl with a gun. It's a buzz phrase and then it's a cliche. The protagonists of a lot of the female-driven franchises that pop up in Twilight's wake almost feel like self-conscious anti-Bellas, just whip-aiming shotguns like a boss. And on the one hand, that seems pretty feminist, right? Gals being badass, shooting arrows, and jump-kicking bad guys, just like the menfolk. But you could also say that this notion of female empowerment just substitutes one form of shallow, narrow characterization for another. More often than not, these are the kind of woman characters you get when male screenwriters empower their female protagonists by giving them qualities ostensibly admirable in dudes. There is an argument to be made, and I guess I'm making it right now, that Stephanie Meyer's Bella, and especially the Bella played by Kristen Stewart in The Twilight That Does Get Made, is actually a kind of feminist anti-hero. 
a realistically sulky and preoccupied and occasionally selfish teenager who, like many great male protagonists throughout the history of storytelling, is not necessarily someone you'd hold up as a role model and doesn't need to be. Either way, what nobody in this whole MTV scenario understands, or has any way of understanding, is just how many people are going to like Bella Swan exactly the way she is on the page. Like a lot of people make fun of Bella, but I feel like she is, she knows what she wants. She's amazing. And she's gonna stop at nothing to get it. We talked to a lot of Twilight fans while making this show. And these are some of the things they said to us about Bella Swan. I think the story is just like romance for romance sake. And I think it's okay to have a main character who's not like a fierce warrior. I think it's Mm -hmm. okay to have a female character that is, you know, very... A normal human. A normal girl. Yes, a normal normal girl. I think it's a good message that's like, you don't have to be this amazing, perfect person to have something super special about you to people, for people to like love you and care about you. Here again is former MTV Films executive David Gale. Once you depart too much from a beloved book, you're in bad, dangerous territory, but the things that happened after that were uh, were not expected. By the time MTV's option on Twilight ran out, the first book was a hit and the second one was in stores. There is a world in which MTV, and maybe even Mark Lord, could have listened to the fans, gone back to the drawing board, and produced a version of Twilight that Twilight fans might not have hated. This did not happen. As a writer, you're sometimes throwing horseshoes a little bit, where you're like, okay, how's this? For whatever people might say about the script that I kind of turned out as what was as my job, um, it was the best we could put together for what they wanted. They were happy with it. Um, And then they exploded. Like... (laughs) It it got pretty contentious. There were some pretty pretty hostile and uh, angry uh, people that wanted to make sure that We did not make this film. And they didn't. Eventually, Paramount put the Twilight Project into turnaround, which is what they call it when a studio writes off their production costs on a film project and makes that property available to other studios. That was in early 2006. David Gale left his position at MTV Films later that same year. It's a big part of like who I am to sort of try to really get along with people. And so when I saw that I couldn't get along with you know, the people who were going to dictate what we were making, it was obviously time to leave. So, okay, now it's 2006. Twilight's dead at Paramount. But someone else is about to fall in love with the story of Bella and Edward. I'm Eric Feig, and I was the head of production at Summit when I acquired Twilight and then oversaw production on all the adaptations uh, of the saga. So, yeah, Summit acquires Twilight. How that happens is Eric Feig bumps into a producer named Karen Rosenfeld, who was running production at Paramount when David Gale brought Twilight in. Now Karen's working somewhere else. She tells Eric about this book they were trying to adapt. Romeo and Juliet, but with humans and vampires. Eric Feig's like, holy shit, what happened with that? And she said nothing. They have their heads up their asses now. Which will ultimately, spoiler alert, be very good news for Eric Feig and Summit Entertainment and Twilight fans worldwide. I read the script when we got it. And I said, it's really not very good. This is Jillian Borer. I was a a baby creative executive when the series began. And 
ended up through an odd series of events sort of being put in charge of the whole thing. Jillian, who had just started at Summit at the age of 24, would not be a baby creative executive for long. She went on to oversee the Twilight franchise, as well as the Divergent series and a little project called La La Land. She eventually became co-president of production at Lionsgate, the studio that bought Summit in 2012. But back in 2006, when Jillian compared the MTV script to Stephanie Meyer's book, it was clear that something had gone awry. I remember that there was a boat chase in one scene. I remember that there's a barn that burned down. And I remember that Bella's dad died. Uh, And the Bella got turned into a vampire. Like, all that happens in the first story. (laughs) Just sort of knowing Bella on the page... Is that a, you know, is that a challenging thing to build a movie around, like that kind of character? Uh, yes. It made so much sense to me, particularly at the time, as a young person reading that book and understanding that book and, and, and recognizing that that character was me. That character was how any, any young person, any young girl, not any, but like many young girls feel. But at the same time, it's such sort of an internal role she's just she's a much more internal character and that's that's always going to be more challenging right so much of that book is in in kind of inner monologue and inner thoughts and i you know you can see maybe why they might want to give her a shotgun and have her you know just be (laughs) moving the plot forward sure but that's not bella and by the time we got a hold of the project there was a fan base that loved the book for what it was. So our mentality the whole time was, we are here to service that fan base. We are here to service that fan base. So they've figured that out. And now all Eric, Jillian, and Summit Entertainment have to do is convince a reluctant author to give Hollywood another chance and then put together a dream team to make this movie. No big deal. Okay. Can you please introduce yourself and your role in the Twilight Saga? Hey, uh, my name's Catherine Hardwick, and I was the director of Twilight, the first one of the Twilight Saga. How were you approached? Do you remember uh, where you came in? I was at Sundance. I was on the jury in, I think, 2007, and I went to a dinner with the uh, a couple people that were starting this new version of Summit Entertainment. One of those people at that dinner was Summit Production President Eric Feig, who knew Catherine as the director of two gritty and non-traditional movies about teenagers. 13, with Evan Rachel Wood as a middle school girl determined to grow up as fast as possible, and Lords of Dogtown about some legendary Santa Monica skate rats from the 1970s. Eric says he was a big fan. I've never seen a movie that conveyed the adolescent experience in as much like veracity and depth and sensitivity as 13. So they got to talking, and after Sundance, Eric sent Catherine the scripts for five movies Summit was developing, including the Mark Lord draft of Twilight. Here's Catherine again. I read all five scripts. I threw every one of them in the trash. I couldn't relate to any of them. But the next day I woke up and I thought, well, that one about the vampire, I wonder if that's, maybe there's something there. Maybe it's based on a book. It was. So Catherine goes to a bookstore, finds a copy of Twilight, reads it, and loves it. When she goes in to meet with Summit, this is the project she wants to talk about. I said, first of all, this script has to go in the trash. 
no good. You've got to make it like the book. It's it's the reason I think people online and read the book they like it is because there's this feeling, you know, of the first time you've ever fell in love, and it's kind of an ecstatic feeling. And you have none of that in this script, which was in turnaround from Paramount. And the original script literally had Bella on jet skis being chased by the FBI. She was a star athlete. You know, nothing to do with the book. Jillian Borer was working at Summit when these initial meetings with Catherine happened. It was uh, sort of exciting to us that somebody like Catherine, who had done such kind of like grounded, realistic portrayals of adolescence, saw something in the book that really spoke to her. And as Jillian remembers it, Catherine didn't just come in wanting to make the book into a movie. She came in knowing exactly what kind of movie she wanted to make out of it. She came in with like an annotated copy of Twilight and a big visual presentation, and she'd put together a whole lookbook on how she saw Twilight. And from that point on, there was never really a serious conversation of any other filmmaker. And I took a bunch of visuals and everything. I love forest. I love the Pacific Northwest. I love moss and trees. I go, it's going to be amazing to see vampires pale, beautiful creatures in the Pacific Northwest. We always see them in, you know, dirty London streets at night and Paris and all. I said, I want to do this. I want to see if I can actually capture this feeling of ecstasy that you feel in the book on film. I want to just, it's a challenge, you know. And so they went for it. There was only one problem. When Eric Feig started talking to Catherine, Summit did not technically control the rights to Twilight. It's sort of a classic Eric move to sell something that he didn't yet own. In fact, Stephanie Meyer was ready to take her ball, which in this case was a now best-selling novel, and go home. Or, you know, stay home. In Arizona. In a really nice house. Before Twilight, when she was writing the book and selling the book, she had this hope that maybe she'd get enough money to be able to buy a new car. uh, Because they really needed a new car. She had three young kids. She needed a better car. (laughs) But But she was not... By the time she was making a decision about whether or not this was something that she wanted to pursue as a movie, she felt like she'd gotten more out of Twilight than she ever could have imagined. Stephanie's agent told Eric that Stephanie had really, really disliked the MTV script and was in no mood to trust another movie studio to not bungle her book. Undeterred, Eric asked if he could write Stephanie a letter. The agent says, basically, sure, knock yourself out, it's not going to work. But Eric writes the letter. And then he writes more letters. And it was really Eric's mission to make this happen. And he said to her, what would we have to promise you for you to feel confident that we're going to make a faithful version of your book? Why don't we come up with something where she basically tells me what she thinks are the most important elements of her book. And I say what I think are the most important elements of the book. And we'll go back and forth and we'll call it the Stephanie Meyer Bill of Rights. And we'll make that whole list. It can be as long or as short as she wants it to be. And we'll go through absolutely everything. And then I'm going to say that I'm going to make a movie that lives and dies by that Stephanie Meyer Bill of Rights. The agent said, okay, that's interesting. I'll take that to her. So Stephanie came back a little bit later and came up with a really, really long list of things that were important to her. I read it. The one thing, and I actually remember this, is such a, this is my favorite bit of... Uh, negotiated contract language I've ever had on any deal I've ever worked on. Stephanie had written in the letter um, that her vampires uh, did not have fangs. 
And so I called her and I said, okay, I agree with you. But um, I said, take a look at my teeth. I have tiny little canine incisors that are fang-like. So I wouldn't want to be in violation of the contract if I cast an actor who had teeth like mine. So we have to think of a different way to kind of describe it. So the negotiated language says, no actor playing a vampire will have canine incisors longer than those found in the average human being. And that to me is, I love that line. The challenge of that document was that many of the things that were in it were subjective. And when you're looking for a contract, you need something that is like clearly objective and legally definable. Once again, Jillian Borer. But yeah, it included it included some of those those details and also things like characters can't die in the movies that don't die in the book, uh, but that we could invent new characters that we could kill um, and thus sort of ensuring that we're preserving the integrity of the story as a whole. And in the interest of preserving the story's integrity, Summit turned to a new screenwriter. Sorry to Mark Lord. Eric suggested that we go to Melissa Rosenberg, who had written Step Up for us. So Melissa was someone we knew and who had a great handle on teen voices. And we reached out to Melissa, who was uh, interested in pitching on it. It's the easiest pitch I've ever done in my life. I walked in and said, I just want to do the book. Melissa Rosenberg ends up scripting the entire five-film saga, which is like unheard of in blockbuster land, where every installment of a big movie franchise is credited to a different group of like three guys named Josh. To this day, Melissa has never read the original Mark Lord script, but she was curious, so I told her about it. Oh my goodness, there's a shotgun involved? <laughs> oh, there's a shotgun. Melissa, there's a shotgun, there's jet skis. Like, it's a really crazy, oh, like, there's my. action. I like, thought they were joking about that. I think Stephanie or Eric was telling me, yeah, there was like a speedboat jet skis. I'm like, what? Melissa says she didn't have trouble solving the supposed Bella problem because she didn't see Bella as a problem. In any book adaptation, she says, trying to find a way to externalize the stuff that happens in a character's head is always the challenge. But as Melissa saw it, what was going on in Bella's head was actually interesting. So it was really looking at the character of, of Bella and assessing what does drive her. And <laughs> interestingly, the thing that drives her is Bella wants what she wants. She wants sex. She wants sex with Edward. She wants Edward. And she doesn't stop going for what she wants to go for, you know? So interestingly, she is very proactive emotionally. So it was really about translating that to the screen. Melissa's script contains no shotguns and no jet skis. It's Stephanie Meyer's Twilight with a slightly more active Bella at its center. But at this point, it kind of becomes Catherine Hardwick's Twilight as well. I just think Catherine tapped into the chord the book had struck with its audience and managed to keep that in the movie. This is film editor Nancy Richardson, who'd previously worked with Hardwick on 13 and Lords of Dogtown. Nancy remembers Hardwick calling her and pitching her Twilight as a story about a girl and a new school who encounters this guy who seems into her but also seems really uncomfortable around her. Catherine says, you know, sort of the typical mixed messages that guys give you all the time. 
Catherine described it, becomes one of those really messed up relationships that you had when you were a teenager, where you've always fell for kind of the bad guy. And and it's the way teenagers think about is it's a scary time when they're just reaching this age where if they get involved and they get intimate, they you know, it could hurt them, they could get a sexually transmitted disease, they could get pregnant. It's a source of fear. And so this film is a way of, like, making that intimacy a source of fear. One thing you'll notice about that pitch, at least as Nancy recounts it, no reference to vampires. Because, as Hardwick saw it, that was not the point. I think it's exactly what Stephanie did when you read that book. If you drop your cynicism and you just go... Oh, wow, I remember what it was like the first time I fell in love with somebody or had a crush on somebody. Everybody's had that moment where you just couldn't stop writing their name on the inside of your notebook in seventh grade or whatever it was, you know. And that's what I found was very fun and almost like a drug about the first book. And I thought, I want to make a movie that feels like a drug, (laughs) you know, that feels like, you know, you're taking ecstasy or something that you're just so ecstatic in love with somebody. I'm like, I wonder if I can make a movie like that. Once again, production executive Jillian Borer. There was a kind of preliminary scout trip that we did in September of 2007 to figure out where are we going to shoot this movie? And um, on that trip, we went to Vancouver, Vancouver Island, Forks, um, and sort of general northwestern Washington. Going out there, like walking in the woods, and it was it was the first experience I had of really getting to know Catherine. When we went to Forks, Washington, we went to a diner um, where all the kids, we were told this is where the kids who go to the local high school, this is where they all come for lunch. She went over and like, started chatting with them and, and I'm, I was at the other booth talking with the, the other people from the movie and at a certain point we look over and realize like we hear squeals and laughter and we realize Catherine has told them who we are and who she is and she's sitting in a booth with these girls, taking pictures with these girls. I think there's a large part of Catherine that will always be a teenage girl and she just is going for the authenticity of who they were. All kinds of people worked on Twilight. But a great many of the key players in the production had one thing in common. They were women who had at one time been teenage girls. Here's Twilight Saga screenwriter Melissa Rosenberg. Well, it's interesting that the first writer on it was a man, and it led to jet skis and shotguns in order to deal with the the challenge of making Bella proactive. And then when you put women on it, we go in the direction of character. The book is written from a woman's point of view. The adaptation is is written from a woman's point of view. The direction of the first movie was directed from a woman's point of view. So it was very much a female gaze from its origin. And if you just simply respect that origin and, and lean into it, that's what you're gonna get on, on film. I think it was really special and and a bit unique for the time to be um, part of a project that was so heavily shaped by women. That is music supervisor Alex Patsavis, who put together the highly influential soundtracks for all five Twilight movies, 
turning on a generation of twihards to spooky pastoral indie folk music and then newish bands like Paramore and Vampire Weekend. I think we naturally love the book and were able to really put ourselves there. Um, and also had like a, I mean, I always, on any project I do, I think about the fans. Like, and I felt like I, I knew these fans, you know, these women and fellas, but like, you know, sort of teenagers of all ages. And I, and I knew them well and I had been them. Um, and it was really interesting to think about shaping the music. Before long, bands would be clamoring for a spot on future Twilight soundtracks. But the original Twilight soundtrack was shaped by the enthusiasms of the team, from Stephanie Meyer's love of the Britpop band Muse to Catherine Hardwick's enjoyment during production of some al fresco art rock. I do remember going to a Radiohead concert at the Hollywood Bowl with Catherine, and it was just great. Twilight editor Nancy Richardson. Catherine was standing up and dancing around, and there was a lot of people smoking pot around it. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, she's getting high, (laughs) and she doesn't even know it. And she turned to me, and she says, I'm getting all these ideas for the end credit sequence. So I thought, okay. The next day in the editing room, I got my whole crew together, and I said, okay, Catherine is going to have been inspired by this Radiohead concert. Let's look at what their light show was. And I pulled it up on YouTube. And then I said, I just want everybody to come up with one shot, you know, one title that looks like this Radiohead light show here. And we'll send them all to Catherine and see what she thinks. And she, and we sent it to her on set and she called me and said, I loved them all. People who worked on the first Twilight movie, including Catherine Hardwick, have described it as being more like an indie film than the blockbuster it eventually became. Catherine's intuitive approach, where the haze of an outdoor Radiohead concert could inspire the film's end title sequence, set to the Radiohead song 15 Step, was part of that. But that feeling also had a lot to do with the cast, which cohered around two lead actors who at the time were not exactly big names. I'm not afraid of you. I'm only afraid of losing you. I feel like you're going to disappear. So the lion fell in love with the lamb. What a stupid lamb. Catherine knew she'd found her Bella the moment she saw Kristen Stewart in Sean Penn's film Into the Wild, where she plays a trailer park teen who really wants to sleep with Emile Hirsch's character. I see Kristen with all that longing and just lusting for a meal. And I'm like, oh, my God, that is so what I felt from the book. This girl that has so much longing and it's so contained, you know, and just repressed longing. But it was so palpable. So I thought, oh, it's got to be Kristen. Kristen's role in Into the Wild is a small part in a road movie that soon leaves her behind. But before that happens, you can see her doing what we now think of as all the Kristen Stewart things. If you were looking at that moment for somebody who could play authentic teenage vulnerability and authentic teenage embarrassed to be aliveness, the internal churn of desire and neurosis, that sense of an inner life that could render superfluous hundreds of pages of inner monologue, once you saw Kristen Stewart in this movie, you would stop looking. Production executive Jillian Borer. 
we were reading dozens and dozens and dozens of kids. And I was watching many, many auditions because this was all the fun for me. But the, the person we couldn't read was Kristen uh, because she was in Pittsburgh shooting Adventureland at the time. And I remember it was sort of like, we're reading all of these girls and we're reading, we're doing chemistry reads with all these different girls, with all these different potential Edwards. Um, but we're doing all of this in the vacuum of there is like, we, we want to get to Kristen Stewart. Finally, Catherine gets the okay to fly to Pittsburgh and audition Kristen for the part. And because she wants to watch how Kristen plays off another actor, she takes along Jackson Rathbone, who will end up playing Jasper Cullen in the movie, but is at this point still on the list as a potential Edward. And then we went to the hotel room and we rehearsed, you know, all these scenes. And I'm like, let's get out of the room. Let's run around in the park. So we just blasted out of the room. We ran across the street to the park. Jackson started rapping to the pigeons. We're chasing the pigeon. Kristen and Jackson are just playing. By the end, I'm like, she's so good. She's perfect for this. She doesn't overact. She doesn't push it. She's got that kind of sexual repression, all the kind of things needed. And I really felt strongly about Kristen. And so she, they said, okay, we'll go for Kristen. Former Summit President Eric Feig. And then as soon as we, as soon as we had the material and as soon as we actually had the rights and knew what we were doing, she was the first person that we went to. And we said, you're the first person we're going to. And we hope the only person. And thank God she said yes. Um, and at that point, we we're okay, now what are we going to do? There were, of course, other parts still to be cast. Guess what? Robert Pattinson gets cast as Edward Cullen. And basically, the rest is history. You know, we have to believe that when we fall in love with something, that we're not going to be alone. And uh, uh, never been more right in my life. I mean, to me, the, the moment I always flash to is at Comic-Con in Hall H. Here again is Twilight producer Greg Moradian, the guy with the Cheez-Its, in whose garage this all started. This is what Greg said when I asked him when he knew this movie was going to be more than just a movie. Our cast is up on the uh, um, the interview stage, and and there's I don't know six thousand people packed in in Hall H, and when they came out, the screams, the screams that that made the hairs on my arms stand up on end. Uh, I I truly could close my eyes and think that uh, the teenage Beatles had just hit the stage to sing "I Want to Hold Your Hand." It, it was that kind of electricity, and uh, I'll never forget it. Just like endless screaming. But not everybody in that room was having quite that same kind of moment. Here once more is producer Jillian Borer, who was also in Hall H that day. I went backstage afterwards. There's like a, a terrace where they do media interviews after the kids come off the stage. Um, and I went outside and I find Rob like off in a corner with nobody else sitting on the ground with his head between his knees smoking. And I was like, hey, man, are you OK? And he's like, that was absolutely terrifying. He said he's like, I think that that's what hell must be. It was just like this this like abyss of darkness and these blinding lights and this screaming. Next time on The Big Hit Show, illicit thrills. We have teenagers who smoke playing vampires who don't age, which is a terrible combination for a shooting schedule. Romantic chills. Yes, at that time they were not together. She had a boyfriend, um, but I believe they were falling in love 
Do you develop as an editor the ability to tell when people are falling in love? When I you're do, watching? yes, I do. It's actually, I've worked on a lot of films <laughs> where this has happened. All this, plus tabloid misogyny, a cameo appearance by a weird guy who seems like he definitely isn't a few years away from becoming president of the United States, an object lesson in the vital importance of eyebrow grooming, and a small riot at Hot Topic. From higher ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Sabrina Fang, Lori Galaretta, and Taylor Jones. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. Alex McGinnis is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Savannah Wright is our fact checker. Our theme is composed by Dan Leone. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Courtney Holt, and Julie McNamara. Special thanks to Joe Paulson, Eric Spiegelman, and Jenna Levin. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.